Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today. I'm very, very excited to have Eric Valent joining us on the podcast. Uh, if the name is familiar to you, he spent some time in the big leagues and, and is currently with the Miami Marlins. Uh, I'll give you a full background on Eric before we jump into questions with him here. Uh, again, very, very excited about this podcast. And today's podcast is brought to you by Diamond Kinetics. Eric was, is originally from Anaheim, California. He was a, an All-American at Canyon High School in Anaheim. Uh, drafted by the Detroit Tigers out of high school in 1995. He was drafted in the 26th round that year. He also played for Team USA's 18U national team. Uh, he did not sign with the Tigers, ended up going to college, which was, uh, as you'll see, a really good decision for him, I think. Uh, he ended up going to UCLA. At UCLA, uh, the team went to the College World Series in 1997, which I'm sure was an unbelievable experience as a player. He finished his career at UCLA as the Pac-10, at that time the Pac-10's all-time leader in career home runs. He still is the, the conference leader in career home runs. He also set the UCLA career RBI record, which he still holds currently, and he did both of those things in only three seasons. He was drafted in 1998 after his junior year in the first round. He went 42nd overall to the Philadelphia Phillies. He made his major league debut in June of 2001, spent part of five seasons in the big leagues, 2001 through 2005, and then played uh, part of the 2006 season professionally in Japan. Uh, once he was done playing, he got in with the Philadelphia Phillies organization again, spent 10 years with the Phillies organization. Uh, the first year he spent as a hitting coach for the Williamsport Crosscutters, uh, one of the minor league affiliates with the Phillies, and then he uh, got into the scouting side of things, spent uh, time as an area supervisor, and then as a regional supervisor with the Phillies before uh, jumping to uh, or being hired by the Miami Marlins. He was hired by the Marlins in October 2017 to be the national scouting supervisor, which is what he is today, the national scouting supervisor with the Miami Marlins. Uh, it is uh, worth saying as well that he uh, was inducted into the UCLA Hall of Fame in 2015 for the unbelievable seasons, the three seasons he spent at UCLA. Uh, Eric, I, I certainly appreciate you spending time being with us on, on the podcast today. I'm just fortunate enough to be here, Jeff. Looking forward to it. So typically I start with something that stands out from guys' bios. And for you, you know, it was a really interesting path for you, and you've got to do a lot of things that uh, that a lot of people have not. But I'd like to ask you, between playing for Team USA, playing in the College World Series, being a first-round draft pick, um, you know, making your major league debut – out of all, all all those experiences and others, are, are there are there one or two things, Eric, from your playing career that uh, that I guess maybe trump the others as far as just just a thrill for you or just maybe some one of your best memories that you've got as an amateur player? Yeah, um, I'd probably say well, definitely probably ultimately making my debut in the major leagues. That's that's a goal of probably any young kid that loves baseball that started playing. Um, t-ball when they're five years old so you know having that opportunity to make my debut at Fenway Park and then um, get my first get my first hit that I think my fourth at bat off Derek Lowe about a 25 ground ball single between the three four hole on a power sinker <laughs> but uh, that definitely and then a lot of the amateur stuff I, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Southern California and being exposed to a lot of great baseball instruction and great baseball players at a, at a young age and, get, and being involved in scout leagues so and I was a baseball, you know, junkie as far as I was at the field all the time. And, uh, and I was talented, um, but I wouldn't say I was ever the, the biggest guy on the field at a really young age or anything like that. But I was just exposed to a lot of uh, baseball early and that helped my, you know, get my name on 
somewhat on the scene, and I was you know, I was fortunate enough to play, you know, Team USA for for two years the summer before my senior year, and then like you mentioned, the the summer after my senior year. Um, just doing do a lot of different things, and then ultimately go to UCLA and go to the College World Series, and uh, and and have a phenomenal three years there, just both uh, on the field and then just building relationships as well. But number one, definitely making my my debut as far as uh, in the major leagues is, is, is what I could, what I feel to you know any any kid's dream. Yeah, I was one of those kids, and, and unfortunately wasn't nearly talented enough to get there. But I just. You know, that the draft day and making your major league debut are just two things that I don't know that anybody can truly wrap their head around that hasn't experienced that. And, um, you know, if there was anything that, that I wasn't able to accomplish in my own life that I wish I would have, it was it would have been that. I mean, something, either of those things, really, uh, sure. hard to imagine. Eric, who got you into baseball when you were a kid? Is it is it something that you, that you grew up with? Did, did you have family members that played? Um just kind of curious how you how you got into it as a kid and just what kind of grew your love for it when you were young. So my dad my dad enjoyed baseball. So and I was an athletic kid growing up, played a, t- a lot of soccer and uh, and baseball. And I really loved soccer. I played soccer a lot more soccer than I did baseball up until um, high school. And then so I played competitive soccer till till eighth grade. Had a group of guys I played played with kid played with from like fourth grade to eighth grade, and then. I always loved baseball, but I enjoyed playing soccer too. So, but once I got to high school, I just said, "Yeah, you know, I hung soccer up, played football my freshman year, and then you know continued to play baseball. And then uh, I actually started playing soccer again my junior year because I, re- I really liked the coach. It was a, it was a young coach, and uh, some of my friends were playing, and I played on I played varsity soccer as a junior, and then my senior year the coach had left, and it wasn't going to be as fun, and that's why I was playing it. So I ended up just playing baseball, but playing sports all the way through but my dad exposed me to baseball and then seeing that I you know had a had a love for it and kind of just like your son enjoyed watching the games looking at baseball cards reading box scores uh, as a young kid by we we were deep into baseball cards and going to card shows at that time you know in the late 80s it, it was card shows were a big thing so we'd be able to go to card shows in Southern California we were we get tons of autographs from the greats, Willie Mays, Ted Williams, who, who, Mickey Mantle, all of them. So it was just awesome to kind of just be involved in that scene back then. Um, and it was kind of just built my thirst for the game. And then also it, it came pretty natural to me. So, again, when something like that happens as well for, for a kid, you're more likely to keep doing it. So that's kind of how it started. So I've got to ask you a little bit about – your thoughts on on kids playing multiple sports? I mean, I, and I would like you to look at this from a dad perspective, um, as you've got a couple kids that that you know that play that really enjoy baseball, and uh, but also from a scouting perspective. And and you know, I don't know how much things have changed from when you were growing up until now. And uh, or, you know, I, I'm not that much younger than you, but you know, even things when I grew up till now. I'd like to just kind of get your opinion about youth baseball and, and you can kind of talk about, you know, whatever, whatever you have an opinion when kids are, yeah. you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, or when they're 16, 17, 18, I'm curious your thoughts about playing multiple sports. Um, you know, if you believe that, that kids that, that want to play at a really high level of college or that want to play pro ball, you know, if they, if they should be going down to what, one sport like at what point should that be happening i'm just i'm curious you know someone that's that's done the things that you've done but also now the seat that you sit in as a scout and as a dad 
I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on those things. Yeah, um, yeah, multi sports is great. It, but the toughest thing now these days, it's, not, it's just not with baseball. It's just soccer, it's lacrosse, it's with basketball, it's with you know football. Once you get to high school, is they want you twelve months out of the year, and that's the the tug that the parents feel from. You know, the soccer programs, the lacrosse programs, the basketball programs, the baseball programs, they all, they all want you to specialize, which is, it's unfortunate because when you look in, you know, we know the numbers and history of the game. Let's just say, let's take baseball, for example. You're looking at 20,000 people to ever play one, at least one day in the major leagues in the history of the game. So those kind of odds to sit there and try to specialize and stuff and think about that, that is just so far fetched. And, and then the scholarship thing for parents that they get in their, you know, in their kids' heads at nine years old, it's like that is so far fetched as well. It's when any sports, baseball, basketball, all of them, it should be built on a foundation of fun, passion, and just a competition level. That's it. Because as they get older, if the, if the foundation isn't fun and just competitiveness, they can, the, uh, he or she, the, uh, their love for the game, they'll never become what they're supposed to become. If they're doing it thinking, oh, wow, this is going to provide me a great living in the future, or this, or, up to, or maybe they're doing it a little bit for their parents or something, that is, it's not going to work. So, I mean, we see it, the, the, the best players in all sports, whether, you know, the greatest or the ones that end up playing a, a, just a long time and, and being a, a complimentary player in a particular league. They have a passion for the game, and they do it because they want to do it. But getting back, that this time is just there's such a pull, and I think it's almost like some of the parents feel that they get bullied into it. But they could put a plan in place. I mean, I would have to if if your child likes basketball, baseball, football, or they they should play it. They should play it until they have get no enjoyment out of the sports. And even when they're in ninth grade, if, let's just say they're play, they love to play all three sports, but they love baseball, there's avenues for them. They can go to a college camp. Um, they host a camp. Colleges host all the time, little showcase. You, the coaches are there. Okay, when you're a ninth grader, you can pay. You know, it's not It's not expensive compared to some of these showcases that the parents get wrapped up into. And you can get in front of a college coach for, you know, a couple hundred bucks if that. Um, and if you're if you're good, if the coach likes what they see, sees your athleticism, watches you, the way you throw the ball, the way you swing the bat, your bat speed, they're going to take your information. So if you don't have to feel like you're getting left out by not traveling everywhere, you know, up and down the East Coast. But yeah, the landscape has definitely changed. It's 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 tough right now. Uh, it's a little easier for us, you know, being in Pennsylvania. But you get down to count the warmer weather states, all those sports where you can be outside all the time or all year round. It, it's very difficult, and I feel bad for the best player, say at nine or ten years old, because especially if he's playing a lot of baseball, he or she, they're throwing a ton. They're probably pitching at least once a week. 10 months out of the year and just the wear and tear they're putting on their on their on their arm for the future is doesn't doesn't bode well it's my recommendation would be you know so let's just say you're the, a, a kid loves baseball at 9 10 and he doesn't want to play anything else he just wants to play baseball well if you pitch just pitch in the spring and don't pitch in the fall season just just go play a position or vice versa pitch in the fall don't pitch in the spring so that's kind of some little things that you could combat to um, to try to make sure you're, you're just doing it the right way. It's a lot of good stuff there because I that's such a hot topic on social media. And I bring social media up you know, yeah. a lot on podcasts because I think that that's, that's where people express themselves. That's where people throw their opinions out there and 
And there's a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about playing year-round and specializing sports. Eric, is there is there any point with your kids, your own kids, is there any point that could any could could anything happen where that would make you say to your kids, I really think that you should not play basketball this year and or or football this year or soccer or whatever and just focus on baseball like what would have to happen for you to say that to one of your own your own kid or like maybe one of their friends that they kind of like you know their their parents look to you uh for for advice what would have to happen to make you say that to somebody i would say it's like when they graduate high school they are going they already have a major scholarship i'm talking you know, probably 60% beyond, I, I would say 60% major these day and age with what the teams are giving out uh, and the schools are giving out. And we have an opportunity to make an impact as a freshman on campus. If, you, if not, then you continue to just do everything that you enjoy doing. Or if the kid particularly just does not want to play. If he, want, if he or she wants to play, you just keep playing, and that's it. I mean, we can get hurt. You can get hurt walking down the street. So if if someone plays football and baseball and they have a scholarship for baseball and they're going to play a freshman, but they love football and that they've been playing with their boy. He's been playing with his boy since he's eight years old. I mean, those are memories that are going to last. He's going to regret not playing that senior season or running out on a Friday night. So it all depends on, on the kid and it's hopefully his um, parent or his influences in his life, in his life are giving him, you know, good information. You give him information where the kid can make a good decision for himself, for his own life, for his path, what he can look back on. What if it, what if a player was not getting the scholarship interest that they wanted? Do you think there's any merit to taking a year or two where it was baseball year round? And I don't I don't just mean like playing games all year round, but for example, yeah, instead of playing basketball, maybe take time off to lift. Yeah, if that's the path he wants to take, like if he loves, the, if he's like, you know what, I'm willing to give up another sport because I want to just train, I want to get strong, I want to do whatever it takes to hopefully get on campus somewhere at some level, then then yeah. But again, that's just that's got to be the the kid. It, it should all be the kid. The kid decision should be printed, presented in front of him, and to see, and see what he wants to do. So any decision like that, as long as it's something that, that they want to do, then then go ahead. But if they still feel there's opportunities where you, you can play a sport and still train and still get training in with, with another sport, you just got to be able to manage your time and be committed and do it. Like when I used to, when I was playing soccer my junior year, I continued to hit, I'd come home from soccer practice and I got my swings in or I got my throws in and it was never, I'm playing soccer, I'm not working out baseball. No, you just, you do it. I mean, that's the, that's the commitment it takes. I'd like to kind of flip it, stay in the same subject a little bit, but flip it now to the scouting side of things. Um, do you pay any attention whatsoever to how many months out of the year a certain player, obviously it's probably more so for high school than college, but, but for a high school baseball player, does it matter to you at all whether or not this kid you know, is only a baseball player or, or plays three sports. Does that have, is, is there anything about that that changes your opinion about a guy? Does that come into play at all when looking at a player for the draft? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of teams in general, when you think about it, I think we, you love a multi-sport athlete who maybe hasn't spent the hours training in that particular sport yet. So the ceiling or the growth maybe is, is definitely more than pop, more than a, a kid who's been exposed to a, a ton of baseball and who's had a ton of instruction. So, um, or a pitcher who's, you know, who's had less, you know, has just been less mileage on their arm. And, you know, especially this day and age where 
the kids, you know, compared to myself, you know, coming out of high school, I was, you know, one of the top players across the country, recruited players, and the size of this size and strength of the kids today compared to when we were when I was in school, I mean, it's just amazing to me. So that just goes with the sophistication of, you know, these kids are working out and they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, and and you're seeing the injuries too. I mean, you're seeing Tommy Johns are much more prevalent. Um, in high school and then especially even at the college level you're seeing it. there's already a few of the top you know top pitchers this coming year that have already you know, unfortunately went down with some um, elbow elbow injuries and it's just that just happens because these kids are bigger stronger faster and that's what you know you see it in all sports and that's it's something that yeah, yeah we have to combat the kids have to combat what about northern climates compared to southern climates does that does that affect your decisions at all i'm you know i'm from pennsylvania and you currently live in pennsylvania although you're from southern california do you do you look at a kid from a northern climate any different than a southern climate um not in the no in the end we're just looking at the, the, the talent the ceiling make sure all the, the boxes are checked as far as uh, delivery arm action breaking ball basketball that and uh Maybe if it's a tiebreaker, you take a, you know, you maybe you take the kid that hasn't been exposed to as much uh, coaching or just hasn't played baseball. But in the end, no, it doesn't. As far as north south, it it, it doesn't matter. We're going to try to take uh, the best player. Let's ask you a little bit just about your job as a national scouting supervisor, Eric. Can you just explain to people exactly what that means and 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 what your what your actual position is and what your job you know what your job description looks like. Yeah, so um, we're just getting ready to start the busiest time of my schedule is when uh, leading up to the July draft now, amateur draft, is I'm kind of responsible with our scouting director is just to go see the top the top uh, amateur players across the country, whether it be college, junior college, high school, that are, that are available, um, that we've kind of turned in in our system, that we feel fit our, fit our ideals, and uh, and that's what I do. So getting ready from here, starting in February or so, leading up till till July, is just kind of just going to see kind of the top players across the country and kind of seeing seeing how we how we feel about them and ranking them in our system and and listen to our regional scouts and our area scouts and and to be able to make informed decisions, just get as much information as we can, get as many looks as we can, and uh, so we can go to July prepared. How many players will you? specifically see in a given spring and then like how many rounds does that usually equate to meaning like okay there's only 20 rounds in the draft now so will you end up seeing if you guys have whatever 20 21 22 picks will you end up seeing all of those drafts or all those guys usually or will you end up seeing like the top 10 rounders just because you have to see so many so many kids because you're not sure who other teams are going to pick just kind of curious how how many kids you end up usually seeing up, you know, between now and the draft, and and how many rounds that equates to? Yeah, so it, it, you know, so so definitely probably the top the top three rounds for sure, and then and even then that after that, I may end up seeing some of the guys beyond that the past summer or the fall, but definitely the the scouting director and the um, national guys are trying to see the top three rounders, and then you want, and then as you get because you're trying to get multiple looks on players. And as you get deeper in the draft, the regional guys and the area scouts have seen so I've seen the players a lot more than we have. So we want to make sure, and with their goods, they're great scouts and you want to make sure that their, their opinions come into play. So and their opinions come into play from the first round on, but definitely as you get deeper in the draft, you're leaning heavily on the regional scouts and the area scouts. 
and this is this is obviously from an outsider's perspective. I've never sat in the draft room. Um, I've never sat there and watched. You know, I, I don't go to national tournaments and, and watch. Uh, you know, the the top hundred kids in any particular draft class all sort of work out together or whatever. But it seems from the outside looking in, and, and I follow you know follow the draft fairly closely as a fan. And, and again, I'm I, I am a, a local associate scout, uh, so I get to you know, I get to see a couple guys here and there that that might get drafted. But for the most part. It seems that the first round talent, those guys are the ones that that are talent wise clearly kind of head and shoulders above above most people. But at some point, it starts to, the the water starts to get a lot muddier, right? At some point, it starts to it's you see a lot of players that are very very similar talent wise, and and I don't know if this was if this is a fair thing to say, but maybe rounds three through ten or something like that, or at least maybe three through seven or eight, you see a lot of similar guys talent wise. Um, what separates to you, what, what are, what are some of the things that maybe the average person wouldn't see that to you separates guys? Once you, once the very, very cream of the top guy, cream of the crop guys are gone, what starts to separate guys at that point? Um, whether it's, whether it's characteristics or, or whether it's just, you know, something about their background or just whatever, what, what separates guys at that point? Yeah. So there's so many, you know, we know there's, so many variables that come into play and challenges for a player to you know become a major league player but you know teams when you're picking in the first round you have the luxury of you know getting talented players with you know big tools and with performance history or, st- or statistics that can back it up um, and then as you move as you move from the top you know you're getting you know less performance or less tools and so you kind of just kind of pick and choose see what you want to do as you get down you know in the draft you may draft a, a hitter that well, wow he doesn't strike out that much but he doesn't really profile at a position anywhere but maybe we're going to get him better or you know what he's going to do this guy works his butt off he's going to he's going to do whatever it takes and he's so he's maybe he's got that foundation of hand-eye coordination so you take a chance on him or you got the pitcher with the big fastball that doesn't throw strikes and doesn't have a breaking ball but you like the where the arm works and you want to just put him into your system and and see if we can get him a slider or uh, he's going to or he ends up working working so hard so all those type of things you're just looking for yeah a passion for the game at, at, at every round of course and then from the top of the draft you're 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 getting you're getting everything and then as you move down you're just trying to find that one thing and it just goes with the listening to the area scouts and the regional scouts of who of who they really want and how they've got, how deep they've got to know the players and uh and we just go from there one of the last podcasts I recorded, Eric, was with a college coach, a junior college coach who I think does a does a really good job with his program. And um, he kept he was using uh, the acronym OKG a lot. And I finally I was like, okay, you just maybe I'm just not as cool as I need to be, but like you got to tell me what that means. I've never heard that before. And he said OKG stands for our kind of guy. You know, when when then when they're recruiting guys. Uh, they find guys that are that are our kind of guy, and if one of the one of the coaches on their staff says to the other ones when they're having their meetings about you know who they're recruiting and whatever, if the if the one of the coach says this is our kind of guy, the other coaches kind of know what that means. Um, and I think that if you've if you've done any recruiting at the college level or, or whatever, like uh, or any scouting at all, like the, maybe that you can you can re- that resonates with you, and uh, you can kind of understand what that means with the Marlins. Uh, when it just beyond pure physical talent, uh, yeah. are, are there any specific things, intangibles, characteristics, anything else that 
that you guys look for. And, and I'm, you know, when I'm asking this question, I'm thinking again from an outsider, from a, a fan's perspective. You know, you've got Derek Jeter at the top within your organization, and that's that's like the king of intangibles. Um, does, does it does anything like that come from the top down? As far as like what our kind of guy is with the Marlins, are, are there any specific characteristics or intangibles that you guys look for specifically, especially as you get further in the draft? That like, okay, this guy, we're we're uh, the really high level physically talented guys are gone so we're going to start to kind of hone in on this type of player who has these specific characteristics that fit our organization like does that exist and if so does it, does that stuff come from the top down from you know from from an owner or from a gm or from anybody in the organization no you know ultimately you're trying to find the best talent as possible because you look once you get to the playoffs you see what type of players are on the field in order to win championships but um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, in general, in general, I mean, all teams you're looking for you're looking for a passion, a passion of the game, uh, a, a, a competitive drive, um, guys that are team players. You're looking for all that type of stuff, and you want to think you know. But then, you know, these these the, these players at the college and high school level, it's they've almost been like in a Truman Show Truman Show bubble. They really never failed at the level they're getting ready to fail once they enter professional baseball so we, we you know every team wants to think you're going to nail the makeup down the player and you do everything you can whether it's you know uh meeting with them or getting you know having different people meet with the players get to know them uh, talking to coaches and whatnot but until they go out and and perform or hand and or see what they do when they go one for 20 as a hitter with 10 strikeouts or as a pitcher, he gets knocked out three starts in a row or he can't get out of the third inning or something like that. Then it's when those players are faced with that type of adversity of what they're going to do, how they're going to respond. Um, then that's when you truly get to know what the player is all about. So, but again, yeah, we do everything we can to, to talk to coaches, players, to get into the, their, just their competitive drive and their will to their will to to succeed and to win and to you know and, and to get along with people. When you're talking about specifically high school players or even someone like yourself in college, who didn't really experience a lot of failure, now, maybe you didn't like you know I, I know I know what your statistics looked like at UCLA, but I don't know what it was like you know, playing for Team USA or, or summer ball. Um, you know, I believe you, you played in the Cape, right, at some point. And, yeah. I'm sure yeah. that you know there you experience uh, some ups and downs, but for when you're scouting guys at the top of the draft again, whether uh, high school or college guys that don't experience a lot of failure, um, does that it's uh, do, do you feel like at some point you need to see that to really know who the player is? Are you willing to take guys based on tools at the top who you know I'm sure some of the best high school players in the country even go to the top showcases in the country and don't experience a lot of failure? Um, do you kind of have to just pick those guys and, and just let them sink or swim once they get into pro ball. Cause when you get into pro ball, I'm sure everything's different or no, um, yeah, you definitely just kind of, you're taking them, you're taking the talent, you, you, you've met with the, you've met with the players, you feel comfortable taking them. Then after that, Hey, it becomes, it becomes on the player. Uh, they're, I mean, players, you know, whether you go to a big time college or, or, um, professional baseball you there you you get everything imaginable you you're eating tremendously there's nutritionists your fitness um sleep study you name it the best coaches um it's all it's all it's all baseball so it, 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 at some point a player has to realize that he, he's gotta you know his spring bring his um 
bring himself to the party and, and take advantage of it and do it. So uh, when they do experience that type of failure, they have everything everything there at their you know disposal, and and they just got to understand it and know going in. They got to know that you know the failure is coming. So it's just being able to just show up each day, move on. Have a bad day. You're you're looking forward. You're never looking back. It's each pitch. It's each you know each swing. Um, you just got to try to take it incrementally like that. I mean, Sean Green, who I got to know when I was younger, um, he went to Tustin High School, so he was you know five five five, five years older than me. Uh, he's just I used to talk to him when he entered pro ball. It was just like I just try to see how I do each week. You know, just just see and 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 then move on after that. I you you can't. Baseball's too hard to to worry about at one game because um, then it could just keep building on. You kind of just say, "Let me see, how I'm going to do this week," and then, but when that week's over, let's see what I'm going to do the next week. So it's kind of just different perspectives that can help you just kind of manage the day to day grind because baseball, you know, it, it's coming at you every single day. Today's podcast is brought to you by Diamond Kinetics. No matter what season you're in. Our friends at Diamond Kinetics are here to help you train smarter and get better so you can dominate on the field this season. DK's line of mobile-based motion technology products give players and coaches the ability to practice smarter, practice more effectively, and have more confidence in the box and on the mound. On the hitting side, DK's swing tracker bat sensor provides in-depth, comprehensive swing analysis for the data-driven baseball player and coach. Attach the sensor to any bat, swing and immediately see the barrel speed, bat acceleration, and 3D swing plane to enhance player development. DK's revolutionary swing fingerprint identifies your hitting hot zones and helps you improve your approach at the plate. With Diamond Kinetics, you will train smarter and get better and have more confidence on the field this spring. Eric, you just talked about all the amenities that are, uh, are available in minor league baseball. Now, how much is that different from when you got drafted, or or, or is it different from what you experienced as a player? Well, oh, it's what it's way way different. Yeah, you know, spring training back, you know, 25, 25 years ago, thirty years ago, you're running in from uh, for lunch, and you're looking at getting to the soup before all the noodles or chickens taken out of the soup, and eating some sandwiches that are thrown on a table. So now, I mean, it's Phenomenal catered meals, uh, whether it's a spring training or during the season, uh, before games, after games. I mean, they're, it's almost like the it's not it's not quite the big leagues, but it's to the point now where the minor league, where all they have to worry about their performance kind of on the field, and uh, everything else is taken care of them. So they have uh, a great opportunity to become the best the best player that they can be. It's uh, something I, I guess I've I've thought of. You know, with my players that have gotten drafted as, as a college coach, guys that, that go into pro ball is just, you know, how many opportunities they have and how they, they have so many things in front of them uh, to help them to get better. You know, but ultimately a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys, most guys don't make it. Um, and the guys that do make it, you know, a lot of them just for one reason or another, maybe don't uh, don't pan out to be what they what they could have been or maybe what they uh, what what scouts thought they were going to be before the draft or on draft day? Do you think, in your opinion, when you get to that level, Pro Bowl, when you when you get into Pro Bowl and you get into the minor leagues, is it what separates guys at that point? You know what what helps guys move up? Is it is it the guys that have the the physical tools or are physical tools pretty similar across the board? And it ends up being the guys that uh, that are the strongest mentally. 
and, and have the best, uh, you know, the men, maybe the, are the mental are, are the toughest guys out there mentally, or is it the guys that, that have the best work ethic? You know, what, what do you feel like separates guys once they get to that level? If you can point to, you know, one or two things that ultimately are going to, you know, point to guys kind of reaching their ceiling or not. Yeah. I think confidence, competitiveness, and being consistent, that's kind of what's going to, that's what's going to keep you around. That's what the, 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 the best ones in the game are. And even the guys that, end up playing a, a career where they grinded out eight, eight, seven, eight years in the major leagues. They're, they're confident, they're consistent, they understand what type of player they are, they know themselves, they know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, um, and they know all that. So, And then also sometimes it's just timing, mean, just like anything in life, it's sometimes it's timing and it's the, the makeup of a ball club and it's a break here or there or it's an opportunity to you know, you, you reach the major leagues and, and you're you're on a bad team, so you have an opportunity to to, to struggle and, and and the wins aren't as important. So there's a lot of variables like that that come into play. I mean, Eric Harris, I went to UCLA. He was older than me, and we 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 were talking at length one day. And, you know, talking about how how hard it is to reach the big leagues, and then it's I mean it's it's hard to stay in the big leagues too. Not not, not only perform, but just you know, especially if you're on the back end of a roster guy, if you're a 24th, 25th. 26 man um it, it, it's timing it's a little breaks here and there it's it's a lot it's a lot of variables that you don't even think about at the time and that are unique to each player so um especially when you look at the history of the game you know there's, you know, there's roughly 20,000 people that ever play in the game and figure 10,000 pitchers or so 10,000 position players that's not, not a lot of people when you think about a a professional stadium and throw 20,000 people in there. And that's what you're looking at as far as who's, who's played in major league baseball. Yeah. It's really unbelievable when you think about it. And especially for how long, you know, we, we, we've been playing uh, major league baseball in this country. It's, it's really an unbelievable thing to think about. Um, Eric, I don't know if you want, if you like talking about your career or if you, if you mind kind of getting into that side of things, but there are some things that I'd like to, I'd love to ask you about. I mean, you've, You've been through things that most of us haven't. Most of us never will. Um, when you got to the big leagues, what was what were some of the most difficult things about it at that point? Did did pitchers get that much better? Was it uh, you know pressure being at that level? Just just kind of curious. What was what was the most difficult thing for you once you got there? You know, as far as just uh, you know performing day to day. Yeah. So for for me, it was just you know you're going from playing every day in the minor leagues to getting to go into the major leagues and and then I was kind of always playing off the bench a little bit and and I just wasn't consistent enough to do it um so so that's kind of was my was my deal I wasn't quite I wasn't quite good enough to play every day and then as far as play and then I couldn't adapt to not playing uh on a day on a daily basis consistently you know um it was too many peaks and valleys and ultimately that's what um that's what kept me probably on out of the big leagues for a longer for for a long time uh i didn't i didn't quite provide enough power on the bench and i wasn't a base dealer um i wasn't a pure center fielder so that's a tough profile to uh, to stick around in the major league for a long time if you're not playing every day if you could go back and talk to yourself now or even coach yourself now at any point, whether it was high school, college, or pro ball, would, would you would you go back and tell yourself anything different, or um, you know, or, or maybe maybe there were some things that you that you again as a coach you you could have told yourself, or um, is there anything you would have done if you had a chance to go back and, and just kind of mentor yourself, Eric? Yeah, I should definitely try to enjoy enjoy the journey more. Um, 
under, uh, know your strengths and weaknesses. Don't be afraid to make, don't be afraid to make adjustments, you know, on a, on a, at a time when you're, when you're really struggling because there's so many times where you're just going up to the plate as a hitter where you're, where you, where you know you're going to be out, where your, your swing's off, your timing's off. And at that time, it's like, don't be afraid to choke up, you know, higher than you normally have where you can really feel the barrel and just try to put something in play. So, um, just know your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, don't be afraid to make adjustments. Take it day by day. Um, and that's all kind of easy to sit, easy to talk about when you're not, when you're not in it every single day and facing, you know, facing tough pitching day and night and struggling, but it's just trying to keep that perspective, um, all the time. And, and as a younger player, it's probably just quality over quantity in your work. Don't think you need to go and swing 200 times. I, I should have just rather done 50 calculated swings and, and you could be done. But yeah, definitely quality over quantity. Um, know your strengths and weaknesses and don't be afraid to make adjustments. I'd also like to just kind of ask about what sort of pressure you feel when you get to the major leagues. And, and I think there are probably a lot of different types of pressure that you could feel. I'm sure there are guys that um, feel the pressure to, to make the money, you know, once you're there, to stick around long enough to, to make a, a certain amount of money as opposed to getting sent back down or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, pressure from or, or, or you feel pressure like for your for family purposes, like whether you know, you're representing your family and you, and you don't want to get sent down because you just you want to make your family proud of, of being up there or, uh, or or whatever it may be, or, or just, you know, the pressure of, of succeeding and, and having to look up at your batting average or, or whatever, just again, things that, that most of us have never experienced. Did you uh, per- experience any particular kind of pressure when you were there or anything that uh, uh, just that the, the, the normal person go into a game and, and maybe booing a guy off the bench because he's hitting a buck 50, like things that just most of us would never think about. Um, or, or yeah. you know, even being away from family or just whatever it may be. Just can you tell us some, some of the kind of the pressure and the things that you felt in, in experience as a player? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you touched on a lot of good ones that were, that I felt that and even this is, that's what players feel today. You know, the pressure to succeed, maybe to um, perform well for their family, you know, the, they, or you do have a family, you know, it's a chance to make um, some money to set your family up for, for a long time. So it's all those things that those outside influence that you have to be able to compartmentalize and, and, and deal with. And that's, and that's why it goes back to kind of what I mentioned earlier in our, in our conversation was it comes down to the player. You have to have just a innate love and passion and, and just want to compete. And that's, that's what, that's what we'll be able to combat all those other kind of outed pressures sometimes that are, that are going to be sitting there waiting for every player in every sport. Got to imagine that's something that I'm sure that coaching pro ball is a lot different than coaching college baseball, but I've got to imagine that's something that a lot of the pro coaches. Uh, you, you know, yeah. I mean, well, not, you know, even in college now you see it. I mean, there's, you see a lot of kids entering these transfer portals. They're committing so early, but then, you know, they, they would, at these big time colleges now, I mean, the, the head coaches are making big salaries, so they have a lot. They're they're under pressure to win. So these these kids, when they go to college, they're, 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 there's not a long leash in order to uh, to, to develop there. You got to come in and be ready to perform because the, the the coaches have to 
show a product on the field. I mean, that, there's a, those are big, bud, big budgets those athletic departments are putting out. Do you get a chance to talk with guys, your minor leaguers or, or guys that you've drafted specifically? Um, do you ever have that conversation with any with any players, or do you not, be, because of your position as a scouting supervisor, do you not get a chance to really uh, talk with the guys a lot once you've drafted them and they're in the system? Yeah, it's kind of evolved a little bit with my role. I don't, I don't have, definitely have the relationship that the area scout has, kind of with with the players we have in our system, just because they get to get, they're able to get to know their players easily. I'm kind of coming in, maybe I get to say hi here and there, talk to their parents at a game. But as far as building something deeply, um, I, I don't get that opportunity. So Eric, we have a little bit of time left, and I'd like to just ask a couple questions that we got. Um, on social media, I, I posted, I didn't post, I was recording with you today, but I posted that I was going to record, um, you know, with someone who's pretty high up in the scouting side of things with a major league organization and just got a couple questions that I'd, I'd like to throw out there and just kind of see what you think about them. The first one, and this is something I thought about earlier, but just didn't, um, quite get to it, I guess, uh, had a question is velocity, the number one thing that scouts look for in pitchers. And I, and I might tweak that a little bit to say is velocity an absolute necessity for you as the scouting supervisor, no, I mean it's it's it's, a, it's you got to compare high school kids, college kids. Um, so yeah, you're not going to draft a high school kid that's going 80 to 83 miles an hour. Uh, maybe if he, you know you're taking him in the 20th round, but at that point he's probably going to go to go to school, go to school, and try to just develop and get stronger. But no, velocity is just one, only one component of of what any teams. Any teams are looking for. I mean, you're looking with, when you're looking at a pitcher, it's the way their arm works, their their delivery, their balance, their athleticism. Can they spin a breaking ball? Their mound presence, um, just the, the way their body's built, their ceiling, future growth. There's so many things that uh, that are coming into play. So definitely, if you go 95 miles an hour and it's all effort and it's bad arm action, you don't have a breaking ball. I mean, it's really not does this. It's really not going to um, pull the needle one way better for you. As a college recruiting coordinator, it was a conversation a lot with us about how much we would allow ourselves to project a kid, right? You see a kid what he is now, and you think what he can look like. You know, as, as a college coach, you're seeing guys at 16, and you're projecting what they're going to look like at 20, 21, 22. And I, and I thought it was a little bit for me as a recruiting coordinator and, and just, you know, recruiting coordinator in college, I mean, what that, what that essentially means is that you were, um, you know, I, I saw more guys than the other coaches did. And, and I was involved in, in most of the, a lot of the decisions that we made and not all of them, but a lot, but a lot of them. And, um, you know, I, we had a lot of conversations and I had a lot of thoughts and just a lot, a lot of input on guys. And, and I think it was, um, you know, we talked a lot about projection and how much we would allow ourselves to project a kid, right. When you're offering a scholarship, and, and also just based on the ages that kids were, whether you're recruiting a junior college player or a high school player, um, Eric, how much will you allow yourself to, pro, to, to use projection when you're drafting guys, meaning that this is what he is today, but we're going to draft him based on what we think he's going to be, you know, four years from now. So we're going to try to get this guy in the 15, 11th round out of high school instead of let him go to, to college where he might be a first rounder and, and uh, we might not have a shot to get him. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it could, it could just depend on just their their frame, their, their frame, their ability to spin a break a ball. Uh, yeah, how how far away the velocity is. Uh, but oh, definitely, we love we. I mean, all teams love those types of those types of players, and you're you're gonna you could, you're gonna take them higher in the 
draft, you can take them later in the draft. So, it, but it's a lot of there's a lot of uh, variables that come into play with 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 those guys again. So it's you know the way their arm works, um, how far away the velocity is, can they spin a breaking ball, the balance in their delivery, their coordination, um, their confidence when you meet when you talk to them, um, what they want to do, their passion. So. All those type of things that come into play, but yeah, I mean, you're you're not like triple projecting at the top of the draft just because when there's so many there's so many good players now that that you can grab that already have big tools or big stuff, and then you can even project even a little bit more on them, and they have a lot of performance history, and so you're gonna you're definitely gonna go that direction. But I mean, I think you see it now, you know, with these kids. I mean. What's amazing to me, especially at the amateur level, is the, is the commitments these kids are making to college at such a young age, and it, it, it's insane. I mean, to think, I go back to someone like myself when I was in eighth or ninth grade and thinking about making a, and I was a great player, to think about making a college commitment, I'm like, there's no way I would have been ready to do that, to, to, to know where I'm going to be going in four years. And I, and I get social media is connected these kids to more schools, and they can be able to get on campuses earlier, but just the way their brains are and just their experiences general to to commit and to think that they're going to know how they're you know the, the schools are going to they're just banking on that okay wow this kid's insane he's, he's great now playing against you know the other kids so we, we know he's good so let's just let's just commit him and then all of a sudden by the time he's a senior oh he really hasn't grown that much and he's kind of just been stagnant and then they were great four years ago, and now they get to campus, and before you know it, they're transferred off campus in a year. So it's I, I, I and I think that echoes probably a lot of college. They probably wish they could slow this, slow the commitment machine down. But until the NCAA does something about it, I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to, you have to do it. Yeah, and it is a mess, and I don't know. I've I've asked that to a lot of people that I've had on the podcast, and every single one of them, and maybe maybe it's just lip service on the on the podcast, or just even if it's off the podcast. But I've never talked to a coach who thinks that um, a college coach who thinks that committing kids as eighth graders is a good idea. Um, you know, but, they, they, they almost just have to because they know another school will. Well, that's what it is, and and, and as a, I feel for them. I mean, it is. It's. I wish they. I wish there's something they could do about it. Yeah, I mean, and it's and just to give people the reality of this situation and why, you know, why schools end up having to do it more or less. As a so, I got um, hired at Moorhead State, a very very mid major Division one program, and I'm going out to see uh, my first summer there. Like we were, we were still trying to get guys in that that uh, that senior class, like see if there's anybody left because we just we you know kind of need to bring players in right when you get a job and. The next year, you're moving on and seeing juniors in high school, but I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm like seeing, you know, teams of juniors, travel teams, or even high schools where guys are committed, and it's like somehow these these power five schools or even even the like the the I don't know what you'd call them, but between a power five and a mid major, uh, but they are by the time I'm seeing this guy for the first time, he's committed. Like if I'm going to start to get that level of talent. I'm going to have to see them earlier and earlier. And, and that's that's what ends up happening. And that's why you end up having eighth and ninth graders that are committing because if you wait to see, if you wait to commit guys until sophomore, junior, senior year, there's, they're not, they're not there anymore. They're, that, that level of yeah. talent is gone. Yeah, exactly. A couple other questions for you, Eric, that we got on social media today. 
Um, I had a question about uh, about lower level college players, G- uh, Division three players, even even maybe Division two, maybe maybe junior college fits in this. I don't know NAIA guys, but guys that are that are really good players at that level. Um, I had a question just basically how that guy can uh, how that guy can get seen, I guess, in the best atmosphere possible. Is it essential yeah. that that type yeah. of player goes to uh, to play in really good summer leagues? Um, you know, what, what can a guy that, that plays at that level do to, to catch the eye of scouts? Because even a Division three player that has unreal success, you know, he's he's not you, – you might go to see a hitter and he's facing a right-hander who's, you know, 83 to 85. And, like, that's it's really hard to project that hitter as a – for the draft when he's seeing that type of pitching. And probably the same thing for pitchers. You know what? Do you, what do you have to? What do you think as a, as the, the scouting supervisor for the Marlins? You know what do you? What does a guy for, that goes to a lower level lower level college have to do to you to prove that he's ready to play pro ball? Yeah. So a lot of times those are area scout area scout type players, but on the back end, all the teams have the analytics. And if you're, of course, if you're in a Division two, II, Division three junior college, you should be to get an opportunity. You should be dominating the competition and uh, you know kind of being head and shoulders above above everything kind of and anybody on your team i would think so but those guys are getting scouted and they're getting seen we have we have analytics on the back end that, that have identifiers of what of what all these players are doing is in different conferences and and area scouts of all teams are going to see these guys and if, and if it matches up or they like what they see or they see something players are going to get an opportunity it happens every year you see it all the time and then after that, once they get the opportunity, it's up to them to go, you know, go perform in the minor leagues just like anybody else. I think it was the 2020 draft, the short draft where the, the Pirates, you know who people know that I'm, I'm, uh, you know, very interested in what the Pirates are doing. And, and uh, But I think they drafted a guy in the, in the five-round draft that year that was a Division three pitcher. It was a really interesting story. So it definitely can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, another question was about uh, – uh, independent ball and how relevant independent ball could be and i think it's a good question because now with only 20 rounds of the draft instead of 40 you have a lot fewer guys that are getting opportunities and now with the draft as you know as well as anybody the draft is um it's very the the, there are a lot more players in the pool because of the short draft of 2020 there are only five rounds so you know rounds guys that would have been drafted around six through 20 came back the following year and, and that made, I'm sure, the 2021 draft, there were just so many more players than usual. And I'm sure that's going to that's going to kind of play out in the next couple of drafts. Uh, how much is independent ball, um, is it looked at differently now? And especially that, that, like, minor league teams have been cut. Like, is, is, minor, is independent ball a little bit more of an avenue now than it used to be, Eric? And I know that you're, you're probably not going to scout those guys, but is independent ball more of an avenue now than maybe it used to be? Uh, for guys getting a chance to play pro ball, uh, yeah, it, it was, yeah, it's always been a good avenue for guys. Um, whether they were injured, maybe they had an injury history or a little bit older, and they couldn't get a job with an organization, so they go to independent ball and improve it all over again. But yeah, I would think I haven't been to any of those independent league games yet now, but especially with all the with 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 minor league baseball losing, you know, everyone losing some uh, players under their umbrella. It, it's good. they're going to want to keep playing somewhere, and it's going to be independent ball. So yeah, there's going to you're going to probably keep seeing a rise of um, a player signed at a at an independent ball, especially if you just want to keep keep playing and uh, you put you put up numbers and 
and all the a lot of these places now have all you know with the analytics and the track man and teams get the and the teams get the data and the, and they're always going to be look, on the lookout for for talent and, and for sure definitely be able to way to get get to get back into affiliated baseball. Just to wrap it up here, I've just got a couple other questions I'd like to ask if you have a few more minutes. Um, I'm just to to just kind of make it a little more personal and, and talk, you know, a little bit more about, about just you in general, um, with you right now as in such a high position within the Marlins organization, I'm sure that there's a lot of pressure in your job, but I'm also, I'm assuming that there are a lot of really, really enjoyable things for you. What are, what are some of the most enjoyable things about your job? You know, what gives you the most joy with being a scouting supervisor? Yeah, I think it's. I think with any anybody that enjoys their job, I mean, any industry. I think it's just the relationship, uh, relationships with people. I mean, Pat Gillick used to say it best. It's a just a people business. So it's just kind of just being able to, you know, kind of once, especially here, once we start in February, just the daily talkings I have with our regional supervisors or our, you know, or going into scouts, our area scouts area and seeing players. It's just kind of, and then you know, just being at games with you know. Um, the camaraderie of scouts that you know from other teams and the relationships you, that you build. So I think it ends just kind of just with the people you work with and the and the, and the culture, and just trying to uh, trying to ultimately um, win championships at the major league level, and just and just to do your part, whatever you're supposed to, whatever your job description is, is, is to is to do it, do it the best of your ability. What about some of the more difficult or or least enjoyable things? about your job because just like every demanding job I'm sure there are things that, that aren't so fun for you and that might be time away from family or it just might be some of the difficult decisions you have to make or or whatever it may be but but what are what are some of the least yeah. enjoyable things about your job that you wish that you weren't a part of it maybe yeah the, hard, yeah, the hardest thing number one and really only thing is just like you said it's just being away from my family you know being gone 10 12 days at a time home for two days gone again for 12 days so it's just the, the time away and the stress you know that puts on your spouse or, or whoever um, and just knowing that you know you're, you're missing a lot and it's also when you look at the kind of the scouting cycle it gets to a point where you get into the summer months the fall the winter where you have a lot of flexibility in your schedule, in your schedule where you can you know, make up for some lost time that you that you lose out in the in the springtime so it's just kind of those you know different extended periods of time um, when the kids are small that you know you know you're missing and Technologies definitely help with the FaceTime and, uh, and video and all that. So uh, that makes it easier, but it's still, it's still not the same as being home. What does off-season look like for you? Um, a lot of times, like, we're still working through the end of the fall a little bit, you know, October. And then once you get into November and December, it's kind of really just kind of taking a step back. Maybe you're just reading some reports here and there as schedules schedules start to come in for the next year, frameworking some things or just – just being a, that's the time where you can really just take a breath and, uh, and relax and just, and just get, get settled in the home and, and enjoy that, you know, enjoy that time, that time of the year. Yeah. That's how, that's how I know it, it looks on the college side of things as well as like November and December about your only months to really breathe on the college side. And, and just from talking with guys that are on the pro side of things, I know that, that, that's, uh, you know, one of the similarities, at least you get a little bit of time there to sort of decompress and around the holidays, just, you know, to be home with your family. Eric, the last question I'd, I'd like to ask is um, to wrap this up. Just when you are finished on the baseball side of things, um, when your career is over, 
what do you hope that people look back at you and, and, and they talk about you? What do you want people to say about you? Like, who do you, who is Eric Volant and, and who do you hope people see when they get to know you and, and, you know, through all your years of baseball, what do you want people to say about you when you wrap it up? Yeah, I would just say he uh, had a passion for his job, always had a smile on his face, enjoyed, enjoyed, um, enjoyed being at the ballpark and, uh, was conscientious, conscientious, and you knew what kind of, you knew what you're going to get. You asked him to do something, he was going to do it, and uh, he was always looking out uh, what's best for the organization. He's kind of building relationships and trying to make you know everyone around him better. That's a great answer, and I think what most people should be hopefully striving to do with their jobs, no matter what it is, whether it's with a baseball organization or elsewhere. This is Eric Valente, everyone. Uh, he's been joining us on the podcast today. Again, he is the National Scouting Supervisor for the Miami Marlins. Today's podcast was brought to you by Diamond Kinetics. Eric, I can't thank you enough for your time, um, you know, spending your morning with me today and just you know talking baseball here. It was very, very enjoyable, so I, I just want to personally thank you very much for your time and for joining us on the Figured Out Baseball podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it.